G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 with Neil Johnson on Vision. We're going to be talking about Bible translation and not only Bible translation, but a new twist on Bible translation. You'll often hear us talking about the exponential growth of the church around the world and especially on the continent of Africa. What we don't always appreciate is what happens when there is huge growth and the inability of new converts to access a Bible in their own language. Well, translating a whole Bible into one language can take as long as 20 years. And so the crisis is this. Demand for the Bible is dramatically outstripping supply. Well, our special guest today has been working in the African nation of Chad. Eric Stegerda has been working to implement an emerging model of Bible translation called church-centric Bible translation. Teams working on translating 50 key Bible stories so that tribes and peoples have the scriptures in their heart language. Eric Stegerda is Field Operations Director at an organization called Unfolding Word, and he's joining us today live on the line from Omaha in Nebraska. Eric, a special welcome along to 2020. Thank you, Neil. I'm very happy to be with you. Eric, let's start with the global church. It's growing, but the process of Bible translation for just one language can take 20 years. Uh, what are your thoughts about the growth of the church? And uh, you've been working in the African nation of Chad. Uh, what's What are your understandings about the way the church has been growing? Well, the current church growth that we're seeing around the world is a product of several generations of successful church planting by many uh, church planting organizations, many of whom are uh, spawned out of the West. And so they've had great success in actually going around uh, preaching the gospel. Oftentimes it is in a second language that a people might know. Sometimes it's interpreted into the mother tongue for evangelism purposes. But the church has been planted in many, many places in recent uh, decades. And it's gotten way ahead of, essentially, the Bible translation uh, availability for these languages. So it's been a, a um, very positive thing that the church has spread around so far. And what this enables us to do is think about a different way of doing Bible translation. Well, with the growth of the church, and uh, I don't know whether you've got a comment on the numbers, but I hear from various ones that I talk to that there could be as many as 500 million believers uh, throughout continental Africa. And there are so many tribes and languages. As the church grows at that sort of pace, uh, it's difficult to keep up, uh, even with leaders. So not only Bible translation, but just the supply of leaders with some level of maturity to be able to lead fresh and new congregations. Those numbers, uh, those numbers ring a bell with you? Are they? Is that something that looks like it is authentic? Um, yes, I think so. 
If you look at other places, in addition to Africa, we know that China has a very large underground church in the tens of millions and maybe a hundred million underground believers in China. Iran is one, I think, the fastest growing church on the planet right now behind uh, the Khomeini's. And so much of it's not visible. And much of it, as to your point, uh, there's a great lack of leadership for these new churches. Most of them are house churches. Uh, many of them are underground house churches, and they're being led by whomever seems to be the most senior um, believer among them. And that would mean maybe only a few years old in the faith. So leadership is a huge uh, opportunity. Um, I heard on statistic on the India, for example, that there was something like 600,000 house churches with pastors with very little education. So it is a exploding positive thing. The church is being planted, but they are in desperate need of uh, theological development and uh, leadership um, development for their uh, good of their congregations. And as you're reflecting on the success of church planting movements that have sprung up on continents like Africa, and as you say, if you've got 600,000 uh, churches, uh, home churches in some sense uh, in India, uh, if you've got this underground church movement in China, we didn't even mention South America, where some say actually yeah. the numbers of converts in South America may actually be rivaling the 500 million in Africa. So the huge growth of the church, in, in case there are listeners who are wondering, is the church growing? What is God doing in the world today? There's significant things going on. But when a church springs up overnight, and there are immature leaders, and there are no Bibles. This is where you're interested in this space, aren't you, Eric? Uh, exactly, yes. Now, to be clear, in most cases these days, there is a Bible, at least in a related language that they might know. A large part of the planet uh, today is bilingual. They'll know their mother tongue plus probably a trade language or a major language. For example, you mentioned South America. Most of them probably have some understanding of Spanish. So there are Bibles available in most of the, the major languages of the world. But our, our conviction is this. Uh, when you talk about the Christian's ability to grow in sanctification and understanding and knowledge of God, this is where it gets very, uh, how shall I say, personal to them. A person's language is tied to their culture, their deepest understanding of what matters to them, in the heart and how they understand scripture and how they understand God is understood through that language that communicates to the heart. So there are some things they can understand in a second language. Most of what they need to really grow, uh, for example, in Hebrews 4, and I think it's 2 Timothy 2, where it talks about the power of scripture to change the heart, to divide you know, thoughts and intents, to, to encourage and rebuke and correct. That needs to come we believe in the heart language for real change to happen. And most of these uh, languages today still up to half of the world's languages, 3,600 or so, uh, don't have this kind of scripture. Well, here in Australia, there is a trade language and even a lot of listeners uh, to our conversation today, even though we're in Australia, we're not so aware of the Creole language, which is like the trade language for Aboriginal Australians, Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander Australians. But there still are not full translations in all of the tribal groups. So you've got a trade language that many are aware of, and then you've got this language, this heart language. How important is it, Eric, if you're actually going to do discipleship, 
to have scripture in the heart language of the people. How much easier does that make discipleship when that's when that's happening? Well, any of us who are Christians know uh, for ourselves the difficulty of actually walking the sanctification path. Uh, we are expert at deluding ourselves, and we need a very sharp sword in the scripture that the Holy Spirit is wielding to show us our error, to make us receptive to correction, and we need to hear it in the language we know best. It's it, it, To have it in a second language is like having a blunt sword that the Holy Spirit is using. So that's how we view it. That's that important that if you're really going to hit the heart, if you're really going to spawn change, help people grow, they need to hear it in this language that's tied to their culture and that they know best. Uh, is it a fair enough, uh, uh, you know, illustration to use to say that if we, as an English-speaking people, uh, had to actually learn only from a Greek or a Hebrew Bible, that that would be something similar to the the comparison that you make when you've got tribal languages and trade languages and learning complete other languages? Is that something like you know, if we had to learn our own discipleship from reading the Greek Bible uh, or a Hebrew one, uh, that would be the same sort of case? Well, it's one step removed, probably, because, again, most people probably have some understanding. And if they can speak a trade language and there's scripture in it, that's for most of us anyway, that's different than trying to understand Greek or Hebrew. Your average person in the pew probably does not understand Greek or Hebrew. But it could be very similar to, I don't know, if you go back three, four hundred years into what English used to be, could be something of a corollary. Very, very old English is almost unintelligible to us today. So it might be like trying to understand what God is telling us through English that's 500 years old. That would be difficult. Okay. Now, let's talk about what you do, Eric, because I know there'll be some suspicious of, oh, a new model of Bible translation. Uh, Is this open to all sorts of corruption? And we might talk about that, but... You've got a new model of Bible translation called church-centric Bible translation. Explain what that means for us. To see this uh, problem in its simplest form, uh, we can talk of basically four models of translation that have occurred over you know several hundred years. Uh, most people are familiar with these models, so. Back when we were all young, we knew about missionaries that would leave and go and live with a language group for the rest of their life. And they would spend it learning the language. They would many times teach the people how to read and write. And then they would do the interpretation of scripture for them. That's like the missionary model of Bible translation that most of us grew up with. People are familiar with that. Um, Not too long ago, the Bible translation agencies learned that if you gather together groups of mother tongue speakers and you surround them with a project that can guide them in the process, you actually have a more efficient, more effective, and and better translation process. Um, and that's the way most of translation is done presently. There are still some of the first model open, uh, uh, existing. The present model mostly uses mother tongue translators. The switch to church-centric, what we mean by that is we've now shifted to a place where Bible translation is organized, managed, run by, decisioned by, and actually done by the churches uh, for whom it's going to be translated. So the outside agencies now um, come alongside as maybe experts, coaches, but everything is run, shall we say, 
from inside the church, church-centric. And I must say that it's not the only thing that's changed. Missions has changed like that. Church planting has changed like that. It used to be that uh, most of these were done by outside parachurch type agencies as you went around the globe to plant churches and, and, and do theological education, Bible translation. They were separate activities and mostly run by external parachurch organizations. Church-centric actually has all of those things these days wrapped together, you know, oftentimes in, in efforts that stack on top of each other in the same, in the same space. So the Bible Translation Challenge moves to where the organized place is in the church for whom the translation is to be made. Does this require special modern-day tools? In this digital age, uh, we'll talk about AI and such things like that, but are we talking about the sorts of modern tools that actually empower someone in a tribal village to actually take a, a, an opportunity here to create a translation that is going to be in their mother tongue. Is that what we're talking about? That is part of it, Neil. So what we have are differing tools that can be used at different points in the process. For example, drafting uh, tools that you can use with a computer to create your translation. There are different types of tools you can use to check your translation. So when you get into the real meaty uh, examination of a text, you can compare it to the original uh, Hebrew and the original Greek. If you have someone who understands the language, it can work with the team uh, to, to understand how it lines up to the original uh, Greek and Hebrew. That's possible with the use of, the, of tools and software. So those are available. And then there's the process in and around it, though, is the main thing that's different insofar as how we teach and train the church to actually do this, using good tools to produce a trustworthy translation. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. Our talkback line is open on 1-800-316-316. You might want to interact with our special guest. You might have even seen your own uh, journey, even aspirations along the lines of what it takes to translate the Bible uh, into languages where people are coming to Christ and what we've been hearing, coming to Christ in such significant ways. If you're in any sort of doubt as to what God is doing in the earth around the world, uh, this is the sort of conversation today which actually uh, causes maybe more questions than anything because God is doing incredible things as we've been talking about the numbers who are coming to Christ and the crisis that is created not only by the lack of leaders but what happens when demand for the Bible outstrips the possibilities of supply for God's Word in heart languages. So 1-800-316-316 to join in our conversation. Eric Stegerder is our guest. He's Field Operations Director at Unfolding Word. Eric, let me ask you about the lack, uh, the challenge. Uh, I've even said the crisis. So you've got 7,000 languages spoken in the world. or Someone's come up with that idea. Uh, how do we actually then start to think, how do we get the Bible into all of these languages? That is a very good question, Neil, that many people have wrestled with a long time. So we have, after I would say, you know, several generations of doing Bible translation, we have only yet achieved, I believe it is something in the neighborhood of 700 complete Bibles, maybe 1,500 additional New Testaments. 
uh, and then there's portions of scripture in, in several thousand more projects going on that leaves about 3,600 or so languages with little uh, to no scripture whatsoever. Now, another way of looking at this might be uh, to recognize that perhaps, just perhaps, we've done what we might call the easy work first. Uh, the languages that have been more accessible uh, have a larger corpus of, of information in them that makes translation easier. They're highly literate. Uh, cultures and as you get farther and farther afield shall we say you're working with smaller people groups you're working with less education you're working with a lot of uh, potential hindrances uh, which has also uh, created and i would say stretched the full created barriers and stretched the uh, the established uh, way of doing Bible translation almost to its limits at this point so this church-centered thing that we're talking about is called the emerging model a Bible translation, and I really believe it will be required to get to the end with all of these. Well, 3,600 languages that either have no scripture or very little scripture. That is sobering, actually, as a thought when you think of what sort of challenge there is ahead of the church in mission. That that uh, co-mission that we're called to be a part of is a part of what we're talking about today, but we're looking at the big picture. 1-800-316-316. Let's take a call. Diane is in Tamworth in New South Wales. Hi, Diane. Welcome along. Thank you. Diane, what are your thoughts? Um, well, I've just um, made an application to work with Wycliffe. Um, as a sociolinguist, because I've just finished a degree in socio in linguistics, and I find this very interesting. I'm wanting to know uh, if this has an involvement with Wycliffe or Phil in any way, uh, or is it something totally new and separate? Wonderful insight there, Diane. And uh, I guess the question is, uh, Wycliffe Bible translators, and there are a lot of great mission Bible translators around the world. What's the connection here, Eric, for uh, for Diane? Your thoughts for Diane? Yeah, yes, and let me just ask, I, I didn't quite hear her clearly, so I want to make sure I understand her question clearly. Could you re-articulate it for me, please? Sorry? Uh, Diane, I, I think you're saying... Are Wycliffe connected with the work that you're doing with yes, Unfolding that's Word? What that's what I think that's yes. the essence of the question. That's the essence. Okay. Yes, thank you. Thank you for the question. So uh, two things here. Uh, number one, the first answer uh, very shortly is yes. So Wycliffe Bible Translators in the U.S. is a sponsor of some of our projects that we're working on. And we're working in connection with them in Sudan in particularly. So that's an exciting uh, new effort that we're venturing out on together. And the second thing is the translation processes that are being taught and that we utilize here for the church-centric method are all built off of SIL uh, practices. And they're a compendium of the best practices that we know about for Bible translation uh, over the last uh, several decades we've been doing this. So... Uh, a number of resources are borrowed from uh, SIL and the and the work that they've accumulated over this time and the knowledge that they have. Uh, we actually have a translation consultant from SIL on our staff uh, working with us uh, that has developed that. And so the partnership is is relatively new, perhaps uh, two years old, I would say, with Wycliffe, and it's growing quickly. Um, there is also a consortium of Bible translation agencies. Uh, in an organization called Every Tribe, Every Nation, and it involves most of the big ones that you might have heard of. And we have several of those working closely with us now. 
Uh, one of them is uh, called Biblica. They hold the copyright to the NIV. And as we'll probably talk about here, uh, when we talk about church-centric Bible translation, we have to deal with the issue of copyright in an all-rights-restricted situation. That's one of the barriers that we're attempting to remove with church-centric Bible translation. So I want to know, did I answer your question, Diane? Yeah. Um, uh, so is your process being used at all in Australia? Did you catch that, Eric? Is your process being used in that. Australia? Uh not that I am aware. I'm not aware of any work presently that is in Australia proper. We have projects in most of the major regions of the world, but Australia not. And we're not in China right now. Um, there's several other locations where we don't have things going, but we do have a lot in Africa, South America, India, uh, the Eurasia, the Caucasus region, and not yet in Australia that I'm aware of. Diane, wonderful to hear from you and to know that you have a qualification in linguistics and an aspiration to serve God in Bible translation. Uh, it'll be a good connection today and uh, the unfoldingword.org website might be a way that you can connect directly to Eric. And uh, if those resources can work in our Australian context, uh, let's see if we can get those going. So Diane, anything further to add? Uh, no, that was really helpful. Thank you. Wonderful. Diane in Tamworth in New South Wales. And our talkback line is open. 1-800-316-316 to join in our conversation. 1-800-316-316. Eric, let me bring you back to these gateway languages. Because uh, if there's 7,000 languages in the world uh, and there are something like 50 gateway languages... Those are the focus, aren't they, so that your system can actually work efficiently in other uh, smaller tribal contexts. Is that the way that works? Um, yes. So let me explain it this way. One of the barriers that we're attempting to remove for translators is any reliance upon English. So uh, most of the resources that we have available are in English, and what we're trying to do is create a package of resources that can be used as source material for translators in all the major languages of the world. So you mentioned 50. Um, there is a, several years ago, we thought about 50 as the number that would reach probably all the way to the end through patterns of multilingualism. But we've realized since then that there are layers of languages in between. And so now what you really hear us talk about is still a gateway language strategy, but it's phrased more in the language of strategic languages, where we have the 10 biggest ones in the world in which we want a very sophisticated set of, of materials that translators might use present. There's another 30 underneath of that that we want a certain set of uh, resources available, like several uh, types of scripture that can be used and translator's notes and things like this. There's a third layer that has other types of portions, like maybe a localized, for example, Sudanese Arabic would be a third level language. They can use modern standard Arabic as the top 10 language, but then they use Sudanese Arabic as a local version to assist. And at the lowest level, you have simplified text resources, such as the Bible stories we've been talking about uh, that we're using in Chad right now. So all of those, we believe, we need to have resources in those languages to really set free the translation power of the church in every region. Otherwise, what you have is a unnecessary blockage 
uh, called English. And that doesn't get people very far where they don't speak English. So. And just a couple of minutes out from news, uh, one thing I mentioned in our introduction is that you work with 50 Bible stories. We might enlarge on this after the news, but these 50 Bible stories, no doubt that's uh, piqued the imagination of some listeners today. How does all that work, Eric? What we have is a set of what we call crafted Bible stories. They're not actually scripture per se, but they're stories drawn from scripture that run from Genesis to Revelation and tell the whole meta story of what God is doing with humanity. So it begins with creation, ends with Jesus coming back. About 20 of the stories are Old Testament based, 30 are New Testament based, and it really gives people a very good overview of what the whole scripture story is when they're being introduced to it. And it also provides a very good platform for training them for translation. Eric, you've been working in Chad in Africa. Uh, the interesting thing with Chad, and you know, we're not so familiar talking about Chad. Chad doesn't come up in the headlines all that often. And one of the things about Chad is that Chad had no Bible and you've been working there. Does your system work well in the cir- in the circumstances that you've experienced? So let me let me posture it this way. Um, Chad has, I think, in the neighborhood of 140 uh, people groups. Half of them have uh, some measure of scripture, or we would call at least some measure of churches. The other 70 or so have little to nothing. So again, when you get to the North and the west of Chad, or sorry, in the north and the east, you have very little church presence. You get to the south and the west, that's where the evangelical church, there's actually quite a a large church network there. So in Chad, what you see is a unity movement among the churches that have come together to create an initiative to reach the, the north and the east in these languages that don't have either churches or scriptures. They tend to be nomadic and Muslim, most of them. Um, There are also 300,000 refugees from Sudan in Chad, and they've just added another 30,000 or so in the recent Sudanese conflict with people spilling over the borders in every direction. So the church in Chad um, has a a multi-pronged mission, and this is where Bible translation can intersect and become very powerful in this case. So as you mentioned, there is only recently, I think, been a, a Chadian I'm not even sure if there's a Chadian version of, of the scripture available or not. There may be in the, in, the, in the common language. But, again, most of the language groups in there, they, they either speak Chadian Arabic or French or some combination of the two because it was a Francophone uh, country. The national language is French. So the church network is connecting Bible translation with its mission. So church planting mission and evangelism mission, they're bringing church uh, Bible translation into this and making it more of a means of doing the former too. So in Chad, what you have is the Bible story set that we're working with and we're training them to use. They're actually inviting unbelievers, Muslims to the table, and we're teaching these teams how to do a good translation process with the help of, they have missionary uh, and church uh, leaders in and around them a bit, they are working through the open Bible stories themselves and they're learning how to translate well and they're discovering the story of scripture and they're learning about Jesus through these Bible stories. Because it's not scripture per se, it's something that they can more readily work with in simpler language. And then when it's brought back to the community, it's typically introduced to the leaders of the community 
which includes many times imams, and that's processed first with them saying, what do you think of our translation? This is your language. We did this. It's ours, right? So the translators are with them. What do you think of the, the, the job that we did? Is this clear language? Is it a natural language? And what always begins with, at least what we've heard, is it starts with crossed arms and a high degree of skepticism. And within the first story, the first one, just the story of creation, you see people relaxing, uh, people are getting excited, they're hearing it in their mother tongue, which is very impactful. Because these are Muslim communities, they don't have much of anything in the mother tongue. They've been discouraged from having material in the mother tongue. So they rejoice when they see something in the mother tongue that elevates their language to a status of importance. And we're seeing people come to Christ through the translation process. But more importantly, as they do the community engagement piece now, again, this is Evangelical Church Network working with these Muslim teams. When they're doing the community engagement, they're making disciples and they're actually planning churches through that process that are then folded into the normal ministry of the chatting evangelical church. And it's a beautiful thing to watch what's happening there. And just picking up on just how significant that is, something that you might not imagine could work, but you've got that system working powerfully. Hey, we're taking calls, 1-800-316-316. You might like to join in our conversation today. Let's take another call. Alex is in Melbourne. Hello, Alex. Welcome along. Oh, hello, uh, Neil, and uh, hello to uh, Eric. Yeah, my my question is, how is it that the English uh, language, in, in what way does the lingu- English, English language form a barrier for translating into all the different types of tongues that are available, as you mentioned there? Good question. Did you pick that one up there, Eric? From Alex, what are your thoughts? I'm sorry, but I, I, I cannot hear those, so you'll have to okay, repeat it. So, uh, all right, so, uh, so Alex is asking, why is the English language in particular a barrier to these other global languages? And we identified something like 7,000. Uh, so what are your thoughts mm. along the lines of the English language being a barrier here? Well, surprisingly... You might think, well, the entire world understands English, but the matter of fact is much of it does not. So they just don't know English in many of these regions. They know a regional language like Arabic, uh, particularly through the Muslim speaking world, or they know French or some other thing in Africa. But English, they're either not familiar with or it's so little knowledge that they, they can't possibly translate from it. In order to do good translation, you have to be able to absorb and understand deeply the source text you're working with. And most people's English skills are either non-existent in some of these tribes or certainly not at a level where they could absorb and properly understand the English source. That can make for bad translation, of course. Alex, does that answer your question? Uh, Yes, thank you. Thanks very much. Alex, thanks for your call. 1-800-316-316. To join in our conversation, we are talking about... Uh, what's happening in Africa, but it's called a church-centric Bible translation. Our special guest is Eric Stegerda. He's Field Operations Director at Unfolding Word. Uh, there's some really good relationships between what's happening at Unfolding Word and Wycliffe and SIL and other groups like Every Tribe, Every Nation and Biblica. These are major organizations that work in Bible translation around the world. Let me come back to something you mentioned early in our conversation, Eric, uh, that copyright actually is a significant thing in the 21st century, maybe in 
Time's gone by. They didn't worry too much about copyright. You just did a Bible translation. It's become business-oriented, I guess, when you've got copyright rules to obey. Any thoughts here? Um, yes. So, again, something here that was actually initiated, I think, in the beginning, perhaps it was 1901, I think, when the copyright was first tied to a Bible translation. There was valid reason for doing it. In the early days, uh, translation organizations needed to fund their work somehow, and it helped to fund the translation work. And so uh, copyright began to be used uh, on Bible translations beginning then, and most of them ever since have had uh, the copyright on it. Now, the problem with copyright is not the copyright itself, because by international law, you automatically have copyright to anything you produce. What happens on the other side of it is the licensing type. And with copyright, what you get by default is an all rights reserved license, meaning no one can use it without your permission, um, or they have to purchase it from you or some such thing like that. So you control the distribution of this item through the all rights reserved. Now, interestingly, if you open your Bible, most Bibles probably have the same language in them, which gives you a page or two and where it actually says, Here's how much of this Bible, this scripture, you may read at any one time in any particular setting without our permission. And it could be something like 200 verses, 500 verses. And then they'll say something like, as long as it does not comprise one entire unit. In other words, one whole book of the Bible. So just think about that. So technically speaking, you're not supposed to read third John to your congregation without getting permission from the copyright holder. So... Whatever you have to say about that or whatever you think about that, when it comes to translation, you may not use an all rights reserved copyrighted material for translation. You cannot create a derivative work using that without the permission of the copyright holder. Now, this can be done, but typically what you have then are very many. Um, it, it, how do I say it's a nightmare of a management problem to manage the permissions if you have a lot of people asking. If you have one or two people asking, it's okay. But these days, can you imagine someone asking for um, permission to use uh, their translation, say the Arabic translation, and you have many projects going on, just the sheer magnitude of the legal issue to manage what's going on there has become an unintended barrier. So the way it's sorted down is this. In the recent past, when some teams have asked permission from a copyright holder, and it's most typically, most typically for the Bible is a Bible society these days, they've been told no. They cannot have the permission to do that. And typically it's because um, of the financial arrangement that's around it. In other words, if the language group is too small, then the, there's not a financial viability there for producing it, all the work that goes into that, maintaining it, taking care of it, uh, printing it, distributing it, that sort of thing. So unintended consequences of the copyright scenario are such that now most of these organizations have their financial model wrapped around this. So just from a pure business decision, you can't do some things. And it, they may have the goodness of their heart to want to do it, but they can't because of what it would do in the financial model of working with these translations. So let me make this a shorter answer at this point. In church-centric Bible translation, we work in what's called the open licensed arena. So you can have your copyright and release it in what we call open licensed form. 
there's a particular license called a Creative Commons or CCBYSA license. And what it means is you're issuing it into the open license arena. The only requirement for someone to use your material is they must attribute credit to the author saying where the material is coming from. And the most important thing is they must issue the work that they're producing from it in the same manner. So what this does is it creates a perpetually open license scenario for any derivatives work coming from an open license set of resources. So all the resources we're producing in these major gateway languages are open licensed uh, in that way. People don't need any permission to use these materials. All they have to do is acknowledge where it came from, but they must reissue their translations in the same open license manner, which just completely breaks down every aspect of that barrier okay there's challenges there because business models are legal models and of course as christian organizations uh, everyone wants to do the right thing they don't want to mess up what might be a legal uh, model that might have been in place for over 100 years hey we're taking calls 1-800-316-316 we're talking about bible translation let's take another call eris is in hawthorne in brisbane hello eris welcome along Hello there. Um, what's your name again? Sorry. It's a Neil and Eric. What are your thoughts? Neil and Eric. Yes. Um, look, I, I, I couldn't do that. Man, that's a big job, translating another language into the, in the, out of the English Bible into another language. I mean, that's just beyond me. <laughs> and it goes beyond goes beyond an English Bible to another language because what we've got is Greek and Aramaic for New Testament languages and Hebrew for Old Testament languages. And ultimately, those are the important ones, aren't they, Eric? Let's uh, just get some context here. As Eris says, well, it's beyond me translating an English language to another language. What we're talking about is ancient languages as well, not just something that we might think of in, in a modern sense. This is the complexity of it all, isn't it? Well, yes, it is. Now, to be clear... This is important uh, nuance here that we need to talk about. When we create these resources in these uh, 50 major languages or this, you know, I think it's 170 strategic languages, the translation process is from that intermediate gateway into the mother tongue, and then it's back-checked to the original. So the translation is done from a language that they know. So they're doing it from a reputable translation but we know it's not the ultimate translation. So they still, over some period of time, have to check their translation back to what we would say is align it to, check it to the original Hebrew and the original Greek, which can be done. You know, as we talked about before, there are tools that can help you do that in that process. But to break it away from the complexity of those original languages, that's why we talk about the gateway languages where they have a clear set of resources that they understand and understand well to work from to do the original drafting and checking of the scripture translation. Eris, thank you so much for your call. 1-800-316-316 to join in our conversation. Uh, let me ask you about quality, because early on I said, is there in a new way of doing Bible translation the risk that somehow or other there could be corruption of the stories that we understand in the scriptures. How do you get the quality question, uh, trustworthy translations, those uh, sorts of issues that are obviously interesting to a lot of people, particularly those who might be saying, well, I might 
even change my career in that direction or I might divert some finances in that direction. What about the quality question here, Eric? Well, Neil, that is the million-dollar question that everybody is interested in. And I will guarantee you this. Nobody is more interested in that question than the people doing the translation for themselves. They, more than anybody, want the Scripture right, and they want it correct. They want the Word of God speaking plainly to them in a trustworthy manner. So I want to, first of all, just state that the motivation is there to make a trustworthy translation. But there's two things that uh, we have at our disposal here. When we teach a church network who's gathered translation team together how to do this, we teach a team translation process. That means we have groups of people working together on small portions of text and checking it very quickly with one another, cross-checking it to make sure that what they think they're doing uh, makes sense to the other person. And then as we get farther down the path, there are group checks, like team checks of all this material together. So it's very important to get a good process for the drafting and the checking in there that involves many minds. That's one way to ensure that we are eliminating uh, much possible error. The second thing that happens is there's a core translation team, but there's also what we call a secondary checking team that's typically made up of pastors, elders, those with deeper levels of education, maybe even some original language knowledge that then checks the work of the translation team. And they work together with the translation team to improve their understanding of areas where they've maybe made some error. And together, checkers and translation team together, they decide on the proper rendering in the language. That's step number two. The third thing is we have a lot of community engagement in the checking process. So this is taken out as quickly as possible, even in only a few chapter size. It's not wait. We, we don't wait until we put it in front of the intended community for their input. Because this is what we, what we believe in. The word of God speaks powerfully, even in an imperfect state. And if they're involved in checking it, they're having an opportunity to have this impact them already in the mother tongue while they're checking it. So the church is being impacted, is being built up, even in the checking process of this material. And when we put it in front of a lot of people, we get suggestions for word changes because some we, we learn which ones really aren't clear to a lot of people or a confusing type of translation. This becomes more apparent. So the power of the process is really important here in ensuring that quality is done well. And then on the back end side, as we talked about with technology, there are ways to actually now tie directly to the Greek and Hebrew with those that have that skill set to really go through with a fine tooth comb and make sure that we don't have residual error. Amazing that the process itself is actually helping to build maturity into the church in those tribal settings. And uh, it's just this journey that every one of those groups is on. And part of that that brings the maturity is to be a part of this translation process. Uh, You mentioned the way that the checking happens. I did uh, touch on just a little earlier too, artificial intelligence, AI, and predictions, it's changing the world. And uh, some say for the better, some say for the worse. Is there an upside in AI in the way that scripture translation can be putting these uh, Bible stories into the languages of tribal groups? Is AI a good thing for Bible translation? Give us your insights here, Eric. Um, Yes, Neil, I think it certainly can be. I say can be because I think if the wrong expectation is placed on it, it would not be a good thing. Let me tell you where I think it can be very powerful. 
Uh, computers are good at some things that humans are not so good at. So computers can find inconsistencies quite easily and very quickly. So when you have a translation that you can compare to something else, artificial intelligence can, through several different directions, let you know when you've made a choice over here that maybe should be the same word over here, but over here you've chosen a different word. So at least it can flag it for you and said, please go check this to make sure that your choices are correct. So a computer is very good for those kinds of things, finding your inconsistencies, finding where you're using words in a different way. We're exploring that in the Bible translation world, how we might use artificial intelligence, uh, certainly for checking. There is work being done on the side of drafting, whether artificial intelligence can be a help in the initial drafting stage. This may be possible where you have languages that are very closely related linguistically, or pattern-wise, that you may go from one, for example, maybe in the dialect uh, situation, where you're going from a language into a dialect, which is another question. Now, there's many more dialects in the world we could talk about than just languages. So there may be ways where we could apply artificial intelligence to get a baseline draft quite quickly in some things, depending on language relationships. That's also being tested. What people should not assume, I think, at this point, is that someday we'll just be able to dump one translation in and out comes a full, fully reliable translation on the other side. And the reason this is difficult is two. Number one, there are many, many figures of speech in Scripture. Those are hard to translate. You need a lot of corpus of material to even be able to understand how you could translate an idiom or a metaphor of different kinds. These are culturally based and they're difficult. So that's a problem space I don't think computers are going to solve for uh, anytime soon. So artificial intelligence can help us, but it's not going to magically produce a translation that doesn't have to be checked by you know, a rigorous checking process by humans. The second thing is, as most of you know who have read the Bible for a while, even Peter said about Paul, some of the things he writes are hard to understand. The Apostle Peter talking about Paul, meaning when you get into the deep complexities of doctrinal statements, um, in long Pauline sentences, to understand what's being said there in the source and be able to recraft it into a target language, you need the Holy Spirit for that. You can't put that into artificial intelligence. So there's some limitations here, but having said that, I think there's definite ways that we can use technology to assist us along the side and make our job easier And for example, finding inconsistencies. Eric, you have a wonderful way of articulating and explaining with wisdom how this process works and a special honor to you at the cutting edge of something that is new and perhaps even revolutionary in being able to reach those groups with the gospel uh, through this way of doing Bible translation. And church-centric Bible translation is what we've been talking about. I want to connect listeners to Eric. There is a website. It's called unfoldingword.org unfoldingword.org and uh, that's a way of finding out about this good work we're talking about today and a way too to perhaps connect directly to Eric if you have any further questions that you might like to ask unfoldingword.org Eric Stegerder is Field Operations Director at Unfolding Word Eric, thank you so much for uh, staying up a little later and uh, sharing these thoughts with listeners today on 2020 That's a joy for me and my privilege. Thank you, Neil. 
Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au. 